All right. Well, we are on week three of our vision series. So uh, every year we talk about where we're going as a church, what we're doing, and we make sure that we're in line with our vision statement, which we have up in the corner there, reach up, rise up, reach out. And this is our compass. This helps us to know if we're on track or not, because it's easy uh, for ministries to just sort of get off doing other things and not be doing what God has called them to do. And I don't want that to happen to us. I want us to stay focused through the years so that we can continue to make progress and not get sidetracked. Um, last week, we talked about rise up. So reach up, rise up, reach out, reach up is a real relationship with the living God is available to you. We all have available to us a relationship with Almighty God. And rise up, a real relationship with the living God will change you. You will not be the same. You will be brought up out of garbage that's been holding you down, and you'll be brought into who God created you to be. That's rise up. And then reach out that we'll talk about today is A real relationship with the living God is a call to action. Let's do a little recap from last week. Rise up. We want to get better at being Christians. One of the keys to revival in our nation is Christians being good at following Jesus. If the Christians aren't good at following Jesus, it's not going to work. You know, I, uh, do you get me on that one? (laughs) If the Christians aren't good at following Jesus, this thing isn't going to work. Revival will not come because people, Christian people, will push others away from God by their hypocrisy. And that's not going to be a catalyst for revival. But if God's people get good at following the Lord, then we have the potential for God to move. But we have to do our part. So last week we talked about living a life worthy of the call. That's where things change for us when we get better. Ephesians 4.1 Paul is in prison and he's writing to the church in Ephesus and he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So Paul says to the Ephesian church, live a life worthy. This is a prisoner who is sending word out to others who are not prisoners. And he's saying, hey, let's rise up. Let's live a life worthy of the call. And then in Philippians 127, Paul writes to the church in Philippi. You'll notice this is a theme of Paul. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, Paul was in prison when he wrote Philippians, and most likely he was in the Roman prison that he died in. So he's saying, whatever happens, if I am delivered and am set free from this captivity and I'm able to continue uh, going from place to place, or if I suffer injustice at the hands of unrighteous men, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you've lived in this world very long, you will realize that you will suffer injustice. You will suffer wrong. Things will happen to you that you do not deserve. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you suffer injustice, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you have profound victories in your life and everything's working out perfect, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever it is that happens. So Paul was saying, if I get out of this, let's praise God and and 
conduct ourselves in a worthy manner. If I do not get out of this, don't become bitter. Don't become angry. Don't turn to vengeance. Instead, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then Colossians 1.10. Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. And it's the same thing. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. So Paul here is praying for the church, the individuals in the church of Colossae. And if we are going to live a life worthy of the call, we need to be people of prayer and praying for each other because we're going to need some boosts. We're going to need some help. This is a challenge. Amen. Have you ever thought living a life worthy of the calling of Christ is a big challenge that maybe you can't even accomplish? Oh, that's a big call. Now, just to put that all into perspective, let's just run through Romans 3, 23 and 24, just to make sure that we see how this works. Because Romans 3, 23 is still true, even when Paul says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Living a life worthy of Christ is living a perfect life. Right? That's worthy of Christ. But Romans 3.23 is still true. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen? We've all made our mistakes. We've all failed. We've all disqualified ourselves from the prize. But God is merciful. Romans 3.24 is also true. So we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the word and is a great word. 323 doesn't just stop. Well, you're a loser. Shut the book. Nope. 323 and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So yes, we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we are justified and redeemed. And so we grab hold of the justification that comes from Christ and the redemption that he paid for, and we walk forward in that, and that is worthy of the call. To give thanks for what Jesus has done, to walk into what God has given us to do. So that is rise up. We get better at being believers. We live a life worthy of the call. This week, reach out. Let's pray. We'll get into new material this morning. So, Heavenly Father, I thank you for your holy scriptures. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Father, that we don't just wander around down here and try to figure it out, but you guide us. You guide us by your Holy Spirit, and you guide us by your truth in the Bible. And so, Father, I pray that you would just open up your holy scriptures to us this morning, that we would see it for what it is, and, Lord, that you would spark in each of our hearts individually just what we need, because we're all going through different things. We're in different places. We're fighting different parts of the battle. But Lord, you know each one of us right where we're at, and you can touch us by your spirit with just what we need to believe in you better, to serve you more effectively, to walk in freedom. Lord, you know what we need. So I pray that you would just bring that for each one this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Reach out. A real relationship with the living God is a call to action. Let's go to Luke Chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Jesus is engaging in his earthly ministry, and he's going from place to place, and it's going really well. And so that's where we pick it up. Luke 4, 14. Jesus returned to Galilee, and the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. 
He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. So Jesus was a regular church attender. And he's going to the church that he grew up in. He stands up to read. Verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Let's read verses 18 and 19 again. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So I guess it's been finished then. There are no prisoners. There are no blind. There are no oppressed. It's been taken care of. It's, it's done, right? Or might it be, put verse 18 up again. Might it be that there are still poor in poverty needing to find food for their children? Are there still prisoners that need to be freed? Are there still people who have no vision, who are blind, and all they see is darkness, both physically and spiritually. I think this is more about spiritual blindness. People who are oppressed, who are being pushed around by forces beyond their control. Is that still a problem? But this scripture was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. So how does that work? What's the plan? If this is fulfilled, if good news to the poor has been preached, if the prisoners are free, if the blind receive sight, if the oppressed are are empowered, how is it that we still see that? Well, here's the deal. Jesus fulfilled that scripture, but he intended for the church to bring that truth to the world. The church rises up and sets the prisoner free, rises up and brings good news to the poor, rises up and teaches the truth so that the blind can see and releases the oppressed. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 16. We'll start in verse 13. This is going to happen through the church. Matthew 16, verse 13. Then Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? I always think it's weird. They think he's Elijah. They think, I mean, what was their belief system to where they thought he was these other people? It's a strange, strange thing. Um, They seem to have some sort of reincarnation idea there. I don't know what it is, but he's saying none of that's right. Who do you say I am? 
Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. He's saying this is revelation from God. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So he calls him, he changes his name from Simon to Peter. Peter, if we translate it into English, means rock. And so he changes his name to rock. On this rock, I will build my church. The revelation that Jesus is the Christ and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. So it wasn't time for him to be crucified. And so that word didn't need to get out to everybody else. But so he told them to to keep it to themselves. But let's look at verse 18 again. Just make sure uh, we understand this. He says to the disciples and to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not overcome it. So the church is the thing that storms the gates of hell. The church, and here the word congregation would be a more accurate translation of the word. The congregation. It's not the building. (coughs) It's not, you know, whatever you think of as church. It's the group of people. It's the people will storm the gates of hell. I always thought this was a strange verse because why would we want to to storm the gates of hell. I don't want to get in there. Uh, It's a terrible thing. But what this is saying is that we will go into the darkness and pull people out of it. We will go into the terrible places, into death itself and bring people into life that we will go get them. This is an aggressive attack, storming the gates of hell to pull people into life and into freedom. So we see that the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is brought to pass through the church. That the people of God are the ones who go into the world and proclaim good news to the poor and help the poor. Are the ones who go and see people who are bound and constrained and, and, you know, Prisoners in so many different ways and bring freedom for the prisoner. It's the church that's called to do that. We're called to bring this into the world because we are the hands and feet of Jesus. Have you heard people say that we are the hands and feet of Jesus, that the believers, the Christians are Jesus' hands and feet? Well, He's been anointed to bring good news to the poor, and we are His hands and feet. We're the ones who need to do that. We are to reach out into this world and pluck people from the flames, bring people out of their bondage and confusion and uh, oppression and bring them freedom. Now, we have to live this ourselves first. Amen? So if you are like, oh, my goodness, that's really something. Well, just work on you first. You connect with God. You start growing. The day will come when you can do some work. But right now, start with you. Everybody's primary ministry is to themselves. It's a simple fact. If we work on us first, then other things will just sort of happen. And so 
We need to understand this is the responsibility of the church, of the believers, but we need to grow into the ability to reach out. I've always, when I was a new Christian, my first 10 years or so, my first seven for sure, I just thought, man, I want to serve God. I want to do all these things. And I thought I was waiting on God to give me an opportunity. But God was waiting on me to be worth giving an opportunity to. And it took many years for me to be worth giving an opportunity to. Because I had a bad attitude and I didn't know anything. And that's a bad combination. But times changed. God worked in me and helped me to learn and become reasonably competent. And that's, God just needs us to be competent. And then he can do everything else. So the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Matthew 9, 35. Let's read this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So in that day, it was a a more disorganized society. They were under Roman rule, but you know, obviously this is a culture where Jesus could be crucified for saying things people didn't like. This was a hard place to live. And uh, so he saw all these people who were oppressed. They were harassed and helpless, and he has compassion on the masses. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. What does that mean? That means there's a whole lot wrong in this world that needs fixing. The harvest is plentiful. This is Jesus talking how we like to talk in the politically correct world. You know, that's a growth opportunity. You know, oh, I've got a growth opportunity. That means you got something wrong with you that you need to fix, right? He's saying here, the the harvest is plentiful. Look at all the stuff that's wrong in the world. Man, the harvest is plentiful. Lots of opportunity to do things to help out. But the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Who might these workers be? Yeah, we should pray for God to send somebody. Yeah, let's do that. The workers are the people who believe in Jesus. Those are the ones that go work in the harvest field. We are the ones that reach out. We are the ones that bring the truth of God to the world and reap the harvest. Now, the harvest is plentiful. I think it's clear when we look at this world that the harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of hate in the United States right now. The harvest is plentiful. I want to talk about that just a little bit and talk about how we reach out. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. There is plenty of hate in this world. That means that we have work to do, that there is a harvest. When we see hate and bitterness and darkness, there's work for Jesus to do. We are his hands and feet. Hate feeds hate. You're not going to overcome hate with hate. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you are hated, you know how being hated affects you? 
It's hard to be hated. It does something to you. And if everybody's hating everybody, everybody's being affected by this. And so people are reacting out of being hated, and then that's causing other people to be hated, and they're reacting out of being hated, and it's just this big mess. How is that supposed to get better? How do we reap a harvest in that situation? I want to tell you a a funny story from when I was a kid. I wasn't even a Christian yet, and uh, I was a little uh, socially slow. You know, I was good at math, (laughs) but I wasn't good at, like, telling jokes and hanging out with friends. I was much better at math. Um, So one time I was also good at running. So I was on the track team, but I didn't really care about track, but I was on the track team because I could run, and and then so I got recruited on the track team. And we went to this big track meet where there was rival teams, and this one rival team was, they're going to beat us, you know, but we were, the, uh, we were expected to win the, the meet. And, and uh, so this one kid from another rival team says some snarky thing to me, you know, building the rivalry. But I didn't catch it because, again, I was socially slow. So I just thought he was just, hi, how are you doing? I thought he was just saying something. So I'm like, oh, hi, how are you doing today? You know, and smiled and said something nice. And, and he responded with another mean, snarky rivalry thing that people say when they're all upset about high school sports. And, and uh, so I, which I also didn't catch. So I said, yeah, you know, I, what a nice day. The weather's good. I hope you run fast today. I hope you have a good day. And, and he didn't, he was like, what's going on? And so then he said a nice thing to me. And we had a nice little conversation. And he gave up on the whole rivalry thing. And then every now and again, we'd bump into each other as we're getting ready for various events and that sort of thing. And we'd chat and talk and we're sort of friends for the day. And then got on the bus to go home. And halfway through the bus ride, I thought to myself, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> he, he was saying mean things to me. <laughs> what? That's terrible. What a, I thought he was a good guy, you know. And then, boom, all of a sudden I was like, wow, what if I had caught that? and I had responded differently, we'd had a completely different interaction. But since I returned good for evil, and I kept doing it, he gave up. He's like, ah, well, whatever. I guess he's a nice guy. We'll just, we'll just give up on the rivalry thing. And, uh, and we just hung out. And that is a, a, just a little bitty picture of what it means to overcome evil with good. It's a simple situation Low stakes, but it's the principle that I lived out. It's a principle of God that I lived out accidentally because I was socially slow, but learned the message, learned the truth. And so let's look at Romans chapter 12 and see how we face a world full of hate and what God wants us to do to reach out into a dark world. Romans 12, starting in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. So if somebody does evil to us, do we repay them evil for evil? No. What if the followers of Christ could get that one down? And when somebody writes a mean Facebook post, they don't write a mean Facebook post back. Or if a family member fails them in some way, they don't just yell at them and, and cut them with words. What if... We didn't repay 
evil for evil. Oh my goodness. <laughs> do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Can you live at peace with everyone? You can do your part, but it takes two, right? It takes everyone cooperating for there to be peace. I can't live at peace with everyone, but as far as is possible, as far as it depends on me, I can do my part. I can reply with kindness for hate. I can reply with love from bitterness, hate, misunderstanding, injustice. I can respond with truth and life and love. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. This is a very important piece of the puzzle. It isn't that you are kind and loving and they just get off the hook. They will face God. Everyone will face God. And God is really good at avenging the wrongs against his children. He's really good at it. So we don't need to do that. We don't need to take any part in that. In fact, what we need to do is pray for and love those who are separate from God. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So uh, the heaping burning coals on his head thing, let's make sure we understand that. This was a symbolic Jewish thing that fire was a refining thing, that there's the refiner's fire. And so fire had a symbolism in the Jewish culture of cleansing. And so they had uh, lots of rituals, you know, the, the Jewish people, very brilliant people and, and, and uh, able to see symbolism and ritual in meaningful ways. And, and they had a, uh, a big headdress that they would wear that if they were repentant, if they thought, oh man, I'm the one that's wrong, I need to be cleansed. And they would put fire in this headdress to symbolize, I mean, not touching their head, but you know, I mean, it was around and they'd walk around with it and, uh, and it would symbolize, I'm wrong, I need to be cleansed, I, I'm repentant. And so if your enemy is hungry and you feed him, if he is thirsty and you give him something to, to drink, if you keep doing that and you don't give them hate for hate, evil for evil, but you give kindness for hate, you give love for evil, eventually they're going to realize they're the one doing the yucky stuff and you're not. But if you respond evil for evil, how, you know, then the evil you've done is the thing that's going to be remembered. It doesn't take much. When we respond out of frustration, then they remember that. When we turn evil for evil, they remember that. If nine times out of ten we do kindness for evil, but the one time we do evil for evil, the one time's going to be remembered. Wouldn't it be nice if it was more fair? It isn't. <laughs> That's why it's so important. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. If you keep doing that, if you keep being the kind one, the loving one, the forgiving one, the merciful one, if you're doing that, not in an enabling way, not in a codependent way, of course, through the, the truth and love of Christ, 
then eventually the person will see, I'm the one that's lying, I'm the one that's being cruel, I'm the one that's hurting people, and they'll be brought to repentance. They'll change. Now, as far as it depends on you, some people are amazingly incapable of being loved. But as far as it depends on you, do this. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This world is full of evil, and we live in a great, great country. The United States is full of evil, and it's great. (laughs) This country is awesome. There is much deeper evil around the world. We've got plenty for ourselves. But we overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil. Now, that's a challenge. Amen? That goes in the easier said than done category. Do not be overcome by evil. Some people get hit by evil, they don't recover. They don't, they don't get past it. They take it to their grave. Something that happened to them 60 years ago. And they're still affected by it. Do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. This is not a scripture verse that is meaning to be flippant about the evil that we have suffered and just say, I'll just get over it. This is saying that there's hope that you can be free from the evil that has come upon you and you can fight through it. It may take years for you to fight through and to rise up out of the darkness that's been piled on you, but you can get free. Believe for that. Be patient through the process. Be patient with others as they go through the process. But believe for the captive to be set free. Because that's what Jesus came to do. And we can grab hold of it. Do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. Amen? That's a tough one. But these are the teachings of Christ. This is how the light comes into the world. All this evil, all this darkness, all this fighting, somebody's got to turn the other cheek and stop the cycle. Somebody's got to say, okay, yeah, you can hit me and I'm going to love you. Somebody has to do that. And then it can stop if we love our enemies. Jesus is our Savior. Amen? He saves us from what? Two things. First, from the fires of hell. Very important to be saved from hell. The wages of sin is death. And through the forgiving power of Christ, we go from death to life. We are forgiven, redeemed, justified. And we can walk freely in the joy of knowing that we have salvation with eternal life. But Jesus also came to set us free from sin in the sense of living a pointless and and or miserable life. Jesus came, the good news to the poor, to set the prisoner free, to give sight to the blind, to empower the oppressed. He came to set us free from a miserable and or pointless life. There's a challenge in this life that I find, which is, How do we do something worth doing? 
We've got however many breaths we get. There's one. I wonder how many more. We get so many breaths. How can we do something worth doing? If we end up living a life of of ease, but we're not doing anything worth doing, we'll get bored. Have you ever thought to yourself, is this all there is with life? Go to work, come home, buy stuff. Go to work, come home, buy stuff. And you, you, well, I bought what I needed. I guess I win. And you're bored. The battle to find things worth doing. Jesus came to save us from hell and from a pointless or miserable life. So, if we can step into our true calling, then we can step into the purpose of our life. Our purpose isn't to have a comfortable life and die. Our purpose is to make a difference for the kingdom of God because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few because we are the hands and feet of Jesus and he came to preach good news to the poor and to set the prisoner free, to give sight to the blind and to release the oppressed. And we are the ones that are the catalysts for that, that step in and do that. We're the ones that are there. We're the people of God. We're the workers in the harvest field once we get strong enough to be able to do that. Now, some people think that going to church is boring. I tell you what, serving God is not boring. Serving God is awesome to see people get set free, to see people get a vision for who they truly are instead of believing the shame and lies that they've had their whole life. To watch that happen is awesome. To see someone receive forgiveness, become a child of God, go from death to life, I tell you what, that's exciting. To see people get free, it's glorious. It's fun. But I tell you, if you don't get in the game, if you spend the whole life on the bench, it's boring. You know, if you played sports, if if you went, you know, played football your whole life and you never got off the bench, would that be exciting? No, we got to get off the bench. And here's the issue. As I mentioned earlier, I thought I was waiting on God when he was waiting on me. I thought I was ready. (laughs) And I wasn't even close. You know, and so one of the dangers is if we don't grow enough to be able to be used in the ways God wants to use us, we'll be frustrated with our faith. We need to do the thing God has called us to do, that thing that's worth doing, that thing that drives and, and we have passion for. We need to do that thing. But if we haven't developed into the place where we're worth giving the opportunity to, we won't be given the opportunity and we'll stagnate and we'll get bored and slip away potentially. How do you find out what your specific calling is? I'm going to give you a 30-second tool to finding out what God's purpose for your life is. Are you ready? What do you think they should do? You know how they should? Oh, you know what? The church, they need to be doing this. 
They need to change this. You know what? In society, somebody needs to do this. It, somebody needs to fix this. They need to take care of that. I remember the moment I realized that the they I was complaining about was me. They need to do this. Uh Uh-oh, that's me. The thing you're passionate about, the thing you notice should be different. How come you notice that instead of something else? I noticed preachers preaching. And I thought, oh, why why are they doing that? Stop that. (laughs) And again, I had a bad attitude. And But it was an indication that that's where God was calling me to go. If you see something and you think, oh, that needs to change. Somebody needs to do something about that. How come those fools won't take care of that? Well, it's because it's your calling. You're the one that's supposed to step into it. You're the one that's passionate about it. And if you've got life experiences that give you an opportunity to be able to see deeper into that situation, then use those life experiences and that passion from God and step into it. But if you don't get strong enough to be able to be used, you're going to be frustrated. A great preacher that I like to listen to, um, Dave Williams, he's retired now. He talked about the three-legged stool of ministry. There's three things you need. If you don't have all three, you're not going to be able to enter into the fullness of your reach-out experience, your calling in God. And those three things are spiritual development, practical skills, and attitude. We have to get to where we're spiritually strong where we, ha- we know and have applied to our lives the truths of God, where we've been forgiven and we can forgive, where we can pray and connect with God, where we can uh, hold up a shield of faith and extinguish the arrows of the enemy, where we've grown spiritually. Then we need some practical skills. If I'm called to be a worship leader and I can't sing, I'm kind of in trouble, Right? I got to practice. I got to learn. I got to develop some practical skills. And then the third one is attitude. You may be spiritually well-developed and have incredible practical skills, but you got a bad attitude. It's going to bite you. It's not going to work. So we need all three, spiritual, practical, and attitudinal development. I'm going to bring the prayer teams up. We're going to close here in just a minute. Understand, if you've been a believer for a long time and you're starting to get bored, it's not about finding a place where you can get fed. It's about exercising enough so that you can get hungry again. Just sitting at the buffet for your whole life and eating and eating and eating and eating without getting into the field and plowing up some ground is going to make you sick of the food. Go plow some ground. Go work up an appetite. When you, anytime I hear somebody say something like, I'm just not getting fed, yeah, sometimes that might be true. But it means you need to make the transition from learning and growing yourself to helping others. Now you are there. Now you know. Now you've matured. Now you help. You will get that meaning and purpose, not from receiving, but from giving. Jesus cares about the poor. Jesus cares about the prisoners. Jesus cares about the blind. Jesus cares about 
the oppressed. I'm glad that Good Hope Church is seven years old and we have people coming. That's neat. Are there still poor? Are there still prisoners? Are there still blind? Are there still oppressed? We're not done because we can be happy in our little group. We must see that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And our job isn't to have fun times together and eat cake, though that's wonderful. Our job is to be the hands and feet of Jesus and make a difference in this world. And it is your best life. When you get to walk into that, it's your best life. Let's pray. And I want us to just seek the Lord on what's today's thing. One of the things Satan got me with years before was thinking I had to do everything all at once. Well, no, take today's step today. That's all you need to do. You don't need to save the world. Just take the step God has for you today. Tomorrow, take tomorrow's step. The next day, take the next day's step. And then a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, you'll be in a whole different place than you thought. All you need to do is take today's step today. So let's pray together. Then I'll invite people up for personal prayer in the front. So Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love everyone, that you have good news for the poor, that you set the prisoner free, that, Lord, the blind receive sight and the oppressed receive freedom and power. And Lord, help us to see that we have a role in that. Lord, that each one of us has a small part to play. And Lord, let us see that part. Show it to us. And Father, I pray that right now you would show us what today's step is. Maybe we're a long time of healing. And we just need to be healing and and take that step, a step of a piece of the healing of our heart today. Maybe we need to learn some practical skills because uh, spiritually we're there, but we just don't know how to do the thing you've called us to do. And it's just as simple as practical skill development. Lord, maybe our, our heart needs some work. Lord, whatever it is, show us again by your spirit. You can show each one of us exactly what we need, what today's step is. Lord, I pray that you would empower us to take that step. And that tomorrow we'd take tomorrow's step and that we could live in abundance as we learn and grow and become fruitful for your kingdom. So, Father, I pray that for each one of us, that your peace would be upon us and your love would be in us and that we could bear fruit for your kingdom because of all the people you love that need some help. Lord, help us to rise up so that we can reach out. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.